Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Scientists often like to think that, given the combination of their rigorous logical training and inherently rationalistic disposition, they're naturally more resistant to the fluctuating winds of fashion than most. And they probably are. But that hardly means that they are impervious to fads, particularly when it comes to the tantalizing prospect of a silver scientific bullet, one major discovery that seems to have the potential to bring clarity to so many unsolved problems at the same time. Like when increasing numbers of cognitive scientists started becoming convinced that so-called mirror neurons could shed deeply revealing light on a stunningly wide range of topics, from visual perception to autism. But it was when mirror neuron proponents started claiming that they also were vital to understanding speech that Greg Hickok, director of the Center for Language Science at UC Irvine, felt that it was time to jump into the fray. I always liked uh, psychology. The mind fascinated me from a long time ago. Yeah. And I thought as an undergraduate that uh, for all through most of high school and most of my undergraduate education, I was on a clinical psychology track. I was going to do counseling of some sort. Um, and so I, I took a bunch of courses in that area and realized later on that I was ridiculously bored in all the clinical courses and uh, ended up um, finding myself much more interested in um, the neuroscience side, brain stuff. And I read a book by Oliver Sacks, actually, um, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, right. a well-known book. And I was just fascinated by neurological disorders. So I knew I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, uh, but I wanted to do something with the brain. So halfway through the application process to uh, clinical programs, it was that late when I decided what I wanted to do. I was going to say, because the man who mistook his wife for a hat could have driven you into a clinical direction right. uh, as well. But It was the, re yeah. Um, I also got, in, I got involved in research at, at my undergraduate level and really enjoyed that. So it was those two things, and right. being interested in the brain and interested in, in doing research, creating something new, um, discovering something new was exciting for me. Right. And so I just applied to a bunch of uh, experimental psychology programs where there was an opportunity to do brain-related research and happened to get into one program uh, where they were doing language and brain stuff at Brandeis University, and uh, that's where I went, even though I didn't really want to do language. Really? Um, so what, did you have a particular preference at the time? Uh, well, like, like a lot of undergraduates, the visual stuff, you, you, people get excited about visual illusions and you know, various things like that. Right. Um, and so that was kind of the uh, uh, surface interest. Um, was, there, was there a hierarchy at the time that, that these guys go to visual and those guys go to, go to language and these guys look at, I don't know, mathematical psychology or something like that? I mean, was, in terms of the sociology of the field, was it like that or was it, was it just a question of numbers? Some people like this. Yeah, like just, that. you know, personal preferences, I think. And yeah. the, the language part never excited me. I was always bored in the language sections of uh, the intro psych courses. Oh, Because, really? you know, they would teach you what phonemes are and what morphemes are and right. what, what a sentence is. And that was just ridiculously boring for me. 
But once I got into the program and started learning uh, about language from a biological perspective, actually, thinking of it in a different way, that it is essentially an adaptation of your mind, your brain, that allows you to convert things that you're thinking into wiggles in your mouth that can communicate and implant those ideas in someone else, which right. is a di different way to think about it. Um, and so it became a biological kind of question, and that framed in those terms, it's much more interesting. And, and there's the question of looking at things from, um, I would say, a hardcore biological perspective as opposed to more behavioral psychological perspective. I've talked to a fair number of people in the cognitive science field and there seems to be this distinction which is becoming, I suspect, ever blurrier, but, but certainly years back um, there's this notion of I'm a behavioral person as opposed to I'm a brain person, even to the extent where some people will mention the behavioral guys will, will typically tend to use the word mind a lot and mm. the, 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 the biological guys will tend to use the word brain a lot. And did you, did you feel that, that distinction when you were younger, when you were an undergraduate and a graduate student? And did you feel yourself drifting to one side or the other if such a distinction exists? Yeah, well, it still exists, actually. So there are people who do cognitive science and study the mind and don't care a lick about the brain and you know, explicitly say that it doesn't matter at all. Um, and then there are people from the neuroscience side who say that we don't need to, to deal with cognitive theories or these abstract constructs. And all we really need is to get, dig into the, to the neuroscience. And once we understand things at that level, everything will be clear. Right. Um, I've always, since I've been exposed to both sides, I kind of find myself in the middle. I think that there's benefits, obviously, to both. It's really a linking problem. The, the psychological theories that have been developed in language and other domains are a description of real data. They're you know, it's empirical facts and they're theories, abstract. I mean, we're not connecting it to neurons quite, but um, they are constructs that explain empirical data, just like in any science. And it's doing some work. And then in neuroscience, you have information about, uh, or, or data about how information flows in the brain, what neurons do, how networks behave, and things like that. And the, and the game, the real difficult thing, is actually trying to connect those levels. And that's, right. that's where I see the most interesting um, uh, direction for any of this sort of work. Are there increasing numbers of people who are trying to connect them, or, or, or in, your, in your mind? Or, the, or is the separation just maybe growing growing wider? Well, the whole field of cognitive neuroscience, which is a new term as of the late 70s, 80s, something like that, um, is explicitly interested in connecting cognitive theories with, with the brain. Um, but even within there, you have people who value one sort of information over another in some cases. But there's a, there's a large number of people who are really explicitly and um, seriously trying to link cognitive theories with uh, brain constructs. Um, it was criticized quite a bit at the beginning because it felt like neophrenology. And people were doing these functional MRI experiments and pointing to areas that would activate while you were talking or thinking or doing whatever. And um, people were calling it the speech area or the thinking area or the whatever area. And cognitive psychologists rightly, I think, criticized that work for... Um, Basically, the critique was, well, just knowing where something happens in the brain doesn't tell you how it happens, and that's the critical question, how it happens. Um, but as the field has matured, information about where things happen, what circuits are involved, what those circuits look like when we dig in a little bit more is starting to inform cognitive theories quite a bit. I you think? I mean, the difference, obviously, as an outsider between 
so-called neo-phrenology and old-fashioned phrenology is that you actually have scientific devices that are measuring stuff, right? As opposed to some guy just feeling your head and guessing that this is where that is. And I mean, I guess it was not quite that way because they had lesions and people, people who, who did that. But for the most part, as you say, you have all this data now, right? You can start modeling things. So even if it's very preliminary and coarse and generalized and, and even wrong, Right, right. You can you can start it. You can imagine starting to advance because you can say, well, here's the data here, and here's the data right. there, and somebody can come up with all sorts of theories. So, I mean, I've encountered personally a few people of what I would call an older-fashioned behavioralist perspective, who tend to be quite. Um, I'm searching carefully for my words, but who tend tend to be quite negative towards a lot of these, the people who rely upon these modern diagnostic techniques for many of the reasons that you're mm -hmm. saying, um, and seem to be implying that, well, it's all just you know, collecting data, basically. It's not, it's right. not actually building theories, but right. it seems like you need both, right, for the scientific enterprise. You do. Um, the way I think about it is it's kind of like when we first started doing brain mapping with functional imaging, uh, it was kind of like um, a geography exercise. We were just mapping the landscape. Um, which is kind of boring in some ways, um, yeah, but, but, but it's necessary. Ways, yeah. And once we get a, a lay of the land, then we can start doing the geology and understanding how these things come about, what are the forces behind it. Um, so we're, we're getting to the point where we're starting to do some serious uh, geology. So let's get back to speech and language. So yeah. you started off as a graduate student at Brandeis in, in speech and language, which was not an area of uh, overwhelming uh, desire for you at the very beginning, but you started right. to, to recognize things. So what, what started getting you excited and how did you move off in terms of research from that point forward? Uh, I actually started getting some education in formal linguistics and theoretical syntax, oh, yeah. which believe it or not, I found fascinating. Um, oh, I, I believe it. Yeah, it's, uh, Why not? <laughs> uh, well, you know, a lot of people think, uh, as I did when I first started, that formal linguistics is just philosophy. It's not a hardcore science. Yeah, um, I would say just philosophy. That's the meaning of philosophy. Yeah, that's well, the meaning of philosophy. But right, um, well, in the sense that it's not an empirical science, but right. it's it's not. It's the data are um, basically the utterances that people who have a language uh, or have that capacity generate, and um, there are certain sorts of utterances that we do generate, and others that we don't for reasons that are not clear. Right. And syntacticians are trying to understand what are those principles. And they're developing theories that can be tested by looking at more utterances. So it's an empirical science right. like any other. Um, and it was fascinating to me how structured the system was. And it was just rethinking um, something that was very human. Uh, other animals don't seem to have language on this scale. Um, a lot of them communicate quite effectively and, um, and, and in complex ways. But human language is unique in a lot of ways, um, just being able to, like I said, transplant one, one, from one mind to another is a, is a really interesting thing. So that got me very interested, and I actually started out doing psycholinguistics, just straight experimental psychology. Um, even though I got into it because I was interested in the brain, I didn't do much neuroscience research as a graduate student. It wasn't until I went to MIT as a postdoc that I started doing a little bit more neuroscience stuff. But this was all pre-functional MRI, so we were kind right. of limited to stroke do. patients and, and things like that. So right. we're much more limited than we are today. And, and of course, there's the big factor, which is implied certainly in what you're saying, uh, that language in and of itself is, is obviously a hugely 
distinguishing function from humans and, and any other any other animals, any other beings, and so it's it's a pretty big ticket item if you want to understand the human brain and what it is that we do, um, and how we're different from other life forms. It's an obvious place to be to be looking. It may not be the only place to be looking, but it's certainly one very very significant aspect. Right. Yeah. And it, interestingly, in the history of neuroscience and psychology, language has been used as a test case for theories of mind brain over and over again. So it was a centerpiece in the debate over phrenology or more generally whether you could localize uh, different regions of cortex uh, in terms of different functions, which was the, the fundamental core idea of phrenology. Um, even though the science, the pseudoscience of phrenology turned out to be incorrect in terms of measuring bumps on the head, um, the idea that different parts of cortex were specialized for different things uh, turned out to be true and language was the domain that was testable. So one of the functions that uh, Gall um, had proposed is language. Right. Um, and in fact, there's a story that that was the motivation for his theory in the first place. He knew some, somebody who had uh, very buggy eyes and was very loquacious and thought that there's there must be some brain back there that's really developed pushing on his eyes. Yeah. Um, and then in the 1860s, uh, well, throughout the, the, 1900, the 1800s, the people were looking to language as the one function that was easily testable um, uh, uh, as a way of seeing whether different parts of the cortex were doing different things. Um, and then it came back in the, in the 1950s and 60s with the so-called cognitive revolution when behaviorism dominated American psychology and uh, Chomsky pointed out that the structure of language is such that you can't explain it in terms of simple you know, behavior, behavioral uh, uh, principles. Um, so it's been used over and over again. I, I want to get back a little bit later on to the idea of localized function versus distributed function, vis-a-vis um, -vis plasticity and so forth. Um, maybe at the end we can, we can return to that. But um, uh, I guess at least for part of this conversation we should talk about your recent book. Uh, <laughs> but before we do, uh, I think it's worth emphasizing something that you told me a few minutes ago, which was um, the whole issue with mirror neurons was something that arose incidentally as a researcher who was practicing um, your research and, and, and you mentioned this explicitly in your book as well. You had heard about these things, you started getting asked questions about these things in seminars and so you, you, you thought, okay, well, let's investigate this and find out what's going on. But it should not be, uh, one should not confuse the Greg Hickok, the, the cognitive scientist with with an individual who happens to hold a particular set of beliefs after having investigated various claims and so forth. That's not all you do in life, and that's not, that's not the sum total of, of the way you look at yourself as a researcher either. I think it's fair to say, right? Yes, absolutely. I got involved in mirror neuron research kind of accidentally um, because I was studying sensory motor processes in speech, mostly from a motor control standpoint. Um, we were seeing that the auditory system is deeply involved in controlling our ability to talk. Um, and so you, you see this intuitively when you get a bad phone connection and you're getting feedback um, that is out of sync with what you're saying and that disrupts your ability to, to talk. Um, and that's because your auditory system is playing a really important role in generating speech. So we were studying the circuit. We identified the circuit in the brain using functional MRI and we were investigating it. Um, when uh, the mirror neuron discovery kind of 
talked about sensory motor functions, but in the reverse direction, the role of the motor system in perception. And so it um, kind of, we overlapped essentially in research uh, interests, um, but with opposite perspectives. So I was kind of compelled to right. take the mirror neuron claims um, seriously and, and see what was behind them. So let's talk a little bit about that and how it began um, from, from your book. Let's not talk from your book. I mean, just start that all over again. <laughs> um, but let's talk about how that began, which is referenced explicitly in your book. And uh, maybe there are other things to add as well. So, so give me a precy of how you got involved, what the claims are, and then we can start talking about your, um, your analysis and your conclusions and what that means and all the rest of that. Well, I, I first heard about mirror neurons uh, in a lecture that uh, Giacomo Rizzolatti gave, uh, I think it was at the Cognitive Neuroscience Society meeting in San Francisco. Um, and it was fascinating. These cells were responding both while the monkey was generating actions and observing actions, and everyone was interested. It was starting to gain some steam. That was back in early 2000s, maybe. Um, and, uh, but I ignored it. It wasn't relevant to my work at all. I had no interest in it. Um, even though the mirror neuron folks were claiming that it had relevance to speech, I knew it couldn't be the case um, because of a condition known as Broca's aphasia. So when you damage frontal motor speech circuits, uh, it's been known since the 1860s that um, you can disrupt the ability to produce speech quite severely and not necessarily impair the ability to perceive or understand speech language. Right. Um, so obviously, for me, maybe, maybe the mirror neuron story held for monkeys and their ability to understand actions is kind of what I thought at the time. But in terms of speech, it just didn't pan out because um, that was my area of research. Okay, so I'm going to just interrupt you for a bit and ask you to go a little bit slower because we have to assume that not everybody uh, knows some of the basics with, with what they found. So if you can, let, let me try to summarize my understanding and then you can tell me if I'm completely off base. So. So my understanding is the original result was that people started noticing quite coincidentally when they were studying monkeys for something else. These are macaque guys, right? Macaque, right. probably not guys, macaque monkeys. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, that the same neurons were firing when these monkeys were looking at a particular action as when they were doing that action, something about grasping. Right? Right. So the experimenters were coming in uh, in the middle of the experiment or when the experiment wasn't actually supposed to be going on and they, right. were, they were doing something with their hands. And because the monkeys were wired up, they noticed that there were certain neurons that, uh, that were actually firing in the same way um, in these macaque monkeys um, uh, when they were watching somebody do a particular action than when they were actually doing that action themselves. Right. Uh, and, and then my understanding is that people said, well, this is in a particular part of the brain. This is your phrenology thing, this F5 or whatever it is, particular part of their brain, which was considered to be the roughly the equivalent of this Broca's area in the, in the humans that's responsible for language and speech and all the rest of it, or at least largely responsible for that. So then people started going crazy with various hypotheses. Is that a fair summary of yeah, things? Yeah, exactly. The, the interesting thing for me and telling ultimately is that these cells were discovered in the context of a really beautiful research program that was directed by Rizzolatti. In, in, involved in trying to understand how we control actions like grasping generally. And they were interested in, in understanding how we use object shape information to guide action. So when you reach for something, you don't just blindly reach out and grope for it. You take the shape and location of the object into, into account and shape your hand like this if you're grabbing something small right. or like this if you're grabbing something big. Right. So there's got to be a way to integrate that visual information with your 
grasp selection, essentially. And so that they were studying this, and like you said, in between trials, they were noticing that some of the cells that they recorded from responded not only when the monkey reached for things, but when the monkey observed the experiment or swapping out the objects in between the experiments. And that was fascinating. It hadn't been observed before in motor cortex. Um, and so that's, that's how they were discovered. Um, and then basically, they, the question was, how do you interpret this? What is it doing? Um, and it seems um, th the most obvious first interpretation would be that, well, they're kind of imitation cells. Monkey see, monkey do cells. And, right. you know, the monkey sees. Didn't, didn't you say that's what they were actually called for a while? Some people well? called them monkey see, monkey, uh, uh, monkey do cells. That's a um, shame because I, I wish they would have kept calling them that. I think that's <laughs> well, the reason they didn't, they ended up not calling them that is because monkeys don't do that. They don't tend to imitate <laughs> that way. So, that, and that was the big problem for interpretation because the obvious interpretation for these cells, if they're truly mirroring actions, is that they're the, the basis of imitation. Right. Um, but it turns out that it, monkeys don't imitate like that, at least in that, that specific way. Hum, humans do. Um, so we're kind of copying each other with our leg positions, and that's kind of typical of humans, to kind of mirror each other. Now I'm self-conscious. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pretty soon I'll be doing this. <laughs> now I'm really uh, I can control your actions. <laughs> doing the same thing. But, uh, so that was the problem, is that there wasn't a good behavior that these cell, in, the, in the macaques that these cells um, could support. Um, and um, they noticed that, of course, they were recording from F5, like you mentioned, which is the homolog of Broca's area, which is long known to be a speech-related area in humans. Uh, also lurking in the literature was a, an old theory called the motor theory of speech perception. Um, developed at Haskins Labs by uh, Alvin Lieberman and colleagues, which said that we don't perceive the acoustics, that, that the goal of, of perceiving speech is not to recover acoustic information, but to recover the motor gestures that generated that. And, and we don't need to go into the details of why that was the case, but it was a reasonable, interesting theory. Um, and so you could just put two and two together and say, well, there's a psychological theory that says that we perceive speech in terms of recovering the motor gestures. And here you have macaque data showing that there, was, there were cells involved in um, responding to the perception of movements. Maybe this is the precursor to what we're seeing in humans, um, showing up in action understanding more generally, not just speech. And that was really the foundation of the theory. Um, the problem, though, was that in the speech world, that theory had been discredited uh, for reasons that I mentioned, that we know that you don't need a motor speech system to, to perceive and understand speech. And, um, and also, you had also mentioned that the people who had damaged areas uh, uh, in this particular area were still able to understand, they were still able to recognize things. Right, yeah, exactly, and from lots of sources of data, from the Broca's Avasix, like I mentioned, which is the most obvious thing to look to, but also instances of cerebral palsy where kids fail to develop the ability to control their speech articulators can still perceive speech just fine. Um, lots of situations like that, um, that that show that you don't need speech production abilities in order to perceive speech. So that was why the motor theory was kind of discredited. And by the time mirror neurons were discovered, it was a dead theory in the, in the mind of speech researchers. Um, but it was still lurking in the literature. And so the, the neuroscience folks kind of latched onto that um, without being aware of all the reasons why uh, those of us in the language speech domain abandoned it. So, and it, and it went even beyond that. So we can talk about a few areas where, where people were speculating that uh, mirror neurons played a, a seminal role. Um, 
there's an interesting sociological aspect to your to your book, which is um, which I think can be decoupled and abstracted away from cognitive science per se, which is how does how do theories and different interpretations uh, get uh, become the the panacea, right? The, the, the cure all for everything, and all of a sudden they start being applied all over the place. And how, how does that tipping point actually get reached? Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But let's let's mention some of the other areas. So one, uh, and there are many, um, and some of them are very bizarre, uh, at, least, <laughs> at least to me, that have to do with various extremities that uh, I never would have imagined would have had anything to do with uh, mere neurons or anything. But, but one area that you certainly can see some sort of a conceptual link to is, is empathy and autism, relatedly. So maybe you can also talk a little bit about that. Right. Um, well... The mirror neuron theory, like I said, was initially extrapolated most um, seriously to language, and there was a follow-up paper to the to the major uh, empirical reports in 1992 and 1996, which is when the monkey work was reported. Um, a theory was proposed in 97, um, implicating language more seriously, um, and that was uh, accompanied by another a paper in 97 that talked about the ability of these cells to perform mind-reading operations, which isn't as crazy as it sounds. It's basically the idea that, um, uh, that as humans, we understand that our behavior is controlled by our, our own mind, um, and that our minds are separate from other minds, and, and that your behavior is controlled by your own beliefs, desires, and so on. Um, and so that's the ability to uh, mentalize, or um, it's also called theory of mind. Uh, and it, it, it's been, again, argued like language to be something fairly specific to humans. There's debates about that, um, but it's another one of those big things that make us human. Uh, and um, the idea that that ability, so mind reading is essentially the idea that I can, I can, if I'm trying to predict your behavior, I look at your behavior and make inferences about what you're thinking. Um, to try to read your mind, what are you what are you thinking? Right. Uh, Based that, upon that, correspondence that, with what you're thinking and your right, experiences right. and so forth, so you're able to project, as it were. Or exactly. So, so the basic idea is that, like mirror neurons, simulate movements of that you're observing and allow you to understand them through simulation. That we you, we can read minds in the same way that I see what you're doing. Right. I can then simulate your mental state based on what I would do in a similar circumstance, and that explains mind reading in a fairly simple way, so that was a, a big thing. Empathy, you can see, would follow also quite uh, readily. Um, the way I understand what you're feeling is by putting myself in your place, simulating what you're going through, and then I can actually, rather than cognitively imagining what you're going through, I can physically feel it because I'm simulating what your situation, and that you can see how that could explain empathy quite readily. Um, uh, imitation was something that was discussed, even though it doesn't exist uh, as strongly in macaques, um, humans imitate very much. Uh, so, so some people have called our species Homo imitans for our prodigious ability to imitate, copy other members of our own species. Um, and these are the sorts of things that were thought um, to be supported by mirror neuron, the mirror neuron system in humans. Um, and it turns out that these are the sort of abilities that people have claimed autistic individuals. Um, have difficulty with mind reading, language, imitation, theory of mind, empathy, all, all of this stuff. Right? Yeah, and so that led to the idea of um, the broken mirror hypothesis for autism, which you know it it makes sense. All of this makes sense if you assume that 
mirror neurons are their basis of action understanding. With that foundation, you can build fairly elaborate and logically reasonable theories. Yeah. So there are, I guess, a couple things uh, that, that are perhaps worth highlighting. They were able to locate these mirror neurons in this particular part of the macaque brain, this F5 or whatever, which is, we feel is, is analogous, or you feel. I don't feel, but anyway, experts feel is, is, is analogous is, is, uh, to, is the homologue to, to Broca's region or right. whatever. Um, but during these experiments, they actually had recorders that were picking up neural activity in the macaque brain. Uh, we haven't done these experiments with humans uh, for all sorts of ethical uh, and other reasons. And so there was this question just empirically of, well, are these things... Do they exist to the exact same degree in humans? There was this inference that while well, they were in the macaque brain, but um, and so therefore they must necessarily be in the human brain to a relatively similar extent. Um, but I think it's important to specify that it was impossible to perform the same experiments uh, in exactly the same way to be able to determine that with any absolute level of precision for humans as well. In fact, as I understand it, there were there were some pieces of evidence that were not. Uh, completely in line with that hypothesis as well. Right. Um, a lot of the early work in humans was just documenting the existence of something like a mirror neuron system in humans. That was the big question early on. Because if you could document it and you had the interpretation of the monkey mirror neurons nailed down, then you could build these theories that we talked about. Um, and so a lot of work was aimed at really trying to, to determine whether these cells existed in humans um, by inference. Um, the early attempts were, um, although in general they were thought to be supportive, if you look closely, they weren't all that supportive of the existence of, of mirror neurons in humans. So, for example, the first imaging experiments that um, Rizzolatti and colleagues tried in collaboration with other groups um, failed to show evidence that there were PET studies, um, positron emission tomography, failed to show overlap between action, execution, and observation. Um, they did see activation in... Um, near, in and around Broca's area during observation, but they didn't, they weren't the same areas that responded in both execution and observation. Mm. Um, later on, Rizzolatti referred to this um, as rather disappointing state of affairs. Uh, it wasn't until uh, 1999 when uh, Marco Iacoboni showed in humans that the same region of Broca's area responded during the observation of actions and the imitation of those same actions. Um, uh, activated the same regions in Broca's area, so the evidence was was rather thin. But um, and that was even problematic because macaque mirror neurons don't seem to respond to this sort of imitation. So they were something different in the human case. Um, so uh, a lot of people doubted whether they even existed in humans. I was never one of the doubters. Um, just if I ask you to copy a movement, I can do this or whatever, and you can do it. So there's got to be a way for you to take information that you're seeing in my movements and regenerating it in your own motor system. Well, and okay, but hang on. Uh, <laughs> but my, my response would be, okay, maybe I can copy them. Maybe I can copy movements. Maybe I can do all sorts of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I have neurons that are dedicated towards, towards copying. I mean, and there may be systems. There may be copy systems in my mind, right, right. That, that do that. The, the idea that there are particular neurons that are necessarily lighting up when I see actions uh, just as they would as when I do actions, that, that doesn't seem it, to necessarily follow that just because I can copy, right? Is that? Right. It doesn't necessarily 
follow. Um, but there has to be a way of connecting what you're seeing with what you're doing. Right. So there's got to be some sort of a sensory motor system that's right. performing that mapping. Sure. Whether there are individual cells tuned to seeing this and doing this, um, that's impossible to know. But what we do know from the work that Rizzolatti and others had done on object hand movement interaction is that when you are able to coordinate the perception of object shape with hand grasping, you would always find cells that responded to that shape and that and an appropriate hand grasping action. So exactly. it would respond to an orange shape and this particular hand movement. So right. just by inference, right. to me, I didn't need to see the, the evidence. It just made sense that, that such a system would exist. Um, there, was, there, there has been, in general, confirmation that these cells do exist. There was one study by a group in London that showed um, that uh, there were regions in Broca's area that responded both to observing object-directed actions and generating those same actions. Um, I think it was only 10 participants, um, so not a lot of data, surprisingly. And then there was a group at UCLA that showed in uh, neurosurgical patients, they actually recorded in individual neurons um, basically during clinical procedures, um, doing some research during clinical procedures with the subject's permission, of course. Right. They found evidence for cells that responded both during observation and execution of actions. Not in Broca's area. They didn't record in Broca's area, as far as I know. But they found it in um, a, another motor area called the SMA, I believe it was. And this brings up another point that, that, that you made, because you said, if memory serves, that uh, later on, with I think it was with macaques, they, they found mirror neuron systems in the parietal area or some other area, and you had said, well, perhaps if they had actually found this first, they wouldn't have, uh, people wouldn't have necessarily made that link with speech and language and, and, and the way we learn in that particular way because it just would have been interesting data. But, and so part of that uh, jumping onto the hypothesis was this is the particular area where it's relevant to have mirror neurons, but it, in fact, it could be in all sorts of different parts of the brain. Right. Um, the circuit that they were studying, this so-called dorsal stream or sensory motor circuit, includes area F5 in, in motor cortex, but also parietal lobe areas in the intraparietal sulcus. And both of those regions had been studied in terms of their sensory motor properties. Um, and I, I, I do think that the fact that they discovered them in F5, uh, which is the homologue or thought to be the homologue of Broca's area, just called up the analogy with speech and the motor theory, and that kind of led them down the path. Right. If they had found them in PF, which is the uh, parietal region that, um, where these cells are found also, um, it might have been linked to sensory motor processes, which is mostly what happens in uh, the dorsal, uh, the inferior parietal um, lobe in macaques, and it might have gone a different direction. So, right. yeah. um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about imitation and bring it, um, I shouldn't be shifting when I'm talking, but anyway, <laughs> um, bring it home for a lot of people who don't have any particular experience in, in this and say, okay, uh, what are we really talking about here? There's, um, there is this sense of, I can imitate, you can imitate. We all know that monkeys imitate. We have this, at least in the, in the popular consciousness, we have this expression to ape something or mm -hmm. to, um, uh, or, or, or monkey see, monkey do, or, or, or what have you. Um, why do we care about imitation? What do we mean by imitation? Uh, and in fact, when you look at the whole idea of imitation as a, as a route to learning, to, to developing, to, uh, to becoming, to having more enhanced cognitive function, there are all sorts of interesting shades of gray that seem to come up uh, along the way. So in the first case, uh, 
what do we mean by imitation anyway? What are the different levels of, of imitation that we can have in terms of their utility for learning? Well, um, the kinds of imitation that, that Rizzolatti and his colleagues kind of rejected as something that the macaques do is, is a very kind of um, uh, verbatim is the wrong term, but in just direct copying of a movement, um, mm. which macaques don't seem to do. We can do quite regularly. Um, and that sort of imitation is, uh, is something that, um, while humans do, it doesn't seem to exist in macaque. Um, but there are other forms of imitation. But more, more broadly, imitation uh, is something that seems to come in quite early in humans. There are some really heroic demonstrations of uh, infants uh, imitating in um, the neonatal wards. These are um, these 42-minute-old infants. Yeah, right? yeah, and they're you know doing tongue gestures and sticking their tongue out and pursing lips and stuff, and they seem to be able to copy. So, so this is really fascinating. I had never heard about uh, right. any of this. So, so people actually did experiments with these hour-long, hour-old, I guess mm -hmm. you would say, right. uh, children. Uh, and they would go right into the maternity wards and they would stick out their tongues or do whatever and they would see if there was a statistically significant correlation with the infants doing that back to them. And there was. There they, was. They were yeah. doing that. Yeah, so it's very early. And that led to the idea that imitation is innate, that it's something that humans are born with, which is this homo yeah. imitation. Otherwise, idea. it's a heck of an hour of, of it learning. Is, you're so. learning really quickly, yes, <laughs> in the middle of the experiment, exactly. Um, and. Uh, and then the question was, what does that do for you? Um, and the idea is that imitation provides the scaffolding for doing all sorts of things. Uh, for example, you can once you have imitation, uh, you can um, build theory of mind, the idea is. Um, that basically, if you can imitate, that provides a correspondence between myself and others. That's an innate correspondence. I understand the relation between my movements and your movements. And then once the kid develops through experience, it realizes that, well, hey, my movements are controlled by my thoughts and my desires and my wishes, and I can decide to move or not. And since I understand through my innate imitation ability that uh, there's a correspondence between me and you, I can then make the inference that you have the same ability um, to control your own actions with your own mind that's different from mine. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the scaffolding for a really important thing in human cognition. Um, and there's been a lot of work on, on just trying to understand exactly what kids know in terms of their, their imitative abilities and, or what they're capable of in terms of imitation. Mm -hmm. um, and so theories of, of how language develops, how theory of mind develops, are, are grounded in imitation abilities, according to some authors. And there's a bit of controversy over that. But, um, so that, that was the critical, uh, the critical point. Um, and, and we all have this experience anecdotally. You see small children trying to learn a language. You see small children trying to learn all sorts of things, and, and they're imitating constantly. They're imitating speech patterns. They're imitating words. They're imitating um, physical actions, either at play or, or to, to get a, a better comprehension of, of what's actually going on. Um, so it's, it, seems, it seems like a pivotal aspect of, uh, of learning, in, certainly through speech, but all sorts of different things. But you, you highlight two aspects of this, perhaps more than two, but two stand out in my mind, um, that are subtleties that are, are often overlooked, but one should look at, I think, a little bit more closely. In the first case, there is this notion, you, you talked about correspondence, but there is this correspondence problem um, insofar as if you're a 42-minute-old 
baby and you see someone come down and stick out their tongue, we naturally assume that uh, they can mimic. So they think, okay, so he's sticking out his tongue and so I'm going to stick out my tongue back at them. And then the question is, well, how do they, can they perceive that the tongue is being stuck out? Do they have the motor facility to be able to stick out their own tongue? But we're begging an awfully big question, which is that they're able to identify that that thing which is coming at them is the same thing that they have themselves. Um, and so I think we have to be careful philosophically and not to assume too much in the structure. We should be able to distinguish between the motor capacities and the awareness, the visual capacities, and also this correspondence, being able to make this link, which you point out, and which I think if it's very easy to overlook, right? It's a very fundamental distinction, this correspondence, and yet when you look at what the neurons are actually doing, it's not clear whether that gap is being breached. Right. Um, that's, that's been one of the main problems with, with understanding how we imitate, especially those early studies, is how does the, how does the neonate know that, that little thing coming out of that oblong-shaped object that they're looking at corresponds to some motor program that they can activate in their own brain to stick their tongue out too. They've never seen their tongue. They don't exactly. know that. How do, you, how do you know the relation? That's a huge leap. Really. It is, and that's why the innate imitation was important to get a lot of this stuff off the ground. If it's innate, then you don't have to worry about the correspondence problem. It's, it's solved already well, it's, through evolution. It's, it's solved structurally in terms of it's axiomatic, but that doesn't tell you what's going on. It, it doesn't, no. Right? Um, I mean, that, that's what we'll talk about mechanisms a little right. bit later on, but that's the obvious right. question. What the heck is going on right. Right, w w in, inside? Exactly. So mirror neurons actually provide a potential answer if, uh, if the idea is right, in the sense that if mirror neurons evolved to support imitation, then, um, then they, can, they can be the mechanism. That that's, that's basically the mechanism that allows all of this to happen. So even if the action understanding theory was incorrect, um, as I've suggested it is based on the sorts of stuff we talked about, mirror neurons could still be critically important for human behavior if they supported imitation. Because imitation is, according to some, what gives rise to language and theory of mind, and then maybe that leads to empathy, and you can build the whole story on imitation right. instead of action understanding. Um, uh, so it, it's an important piece of the story. Uh, but the, the difficulty is that no one seems to believe that mirror neurons, at least in macaques, have anything to do with imitation. Um, so uh, Rizzolatti has said that they don't support imitation in macaque. Um, the, the researchers who study imitation, people like Andy Mepsoff at uh, University of Washington, uh, interested in mirror neurons, obviously, because they look like imitation cells, um, but has said that they're obviously not enough to support imitation. So the, the simple beauty of the mirror neuron mechanism, its simplicity isn't enough to explain even imitation, which it looks like they're exquisitely designed to do. Right. And that's a problem because then you have to presuppose, so the usual story is that, um, that what happened is that mirror neurons and macaques evolved to support imitation. Um, but then you have to wonder, well, what exactly evolved when you've got the mechanism built in? Right. And then the question is, well, is it really the mirror neuron mechanism that evolved, or is it the cognitive capacity to take advantage of that mechanism, to put it to use for whatever higher level behaviors you're interested in doing, like language or... Right. Because at some level, we know, we know objectively there's a difference. If we've never heard of mirror neurons, we know that macaques can do something... Uh, sorry, we know that humans can do something that macaques can't. Right. Namely, this, this, I don't know, this special type of imitation or this... this 
knowledge gaining imitation or learning imitation or however, whatever you want to call it, higher level imitation. Um, so we already knew that. Right. So the question is, what's responsible for it? And if, if you posit that it's mere neurons, because we see mere neurons in the macaques, that alone, even if you assume that humans have exactly the same mirror neurons, that's, that's no explanation. Then you have to start positing, well, it's an enhanced mirror neuron that do, does that, and that's just tautological. That's just saying right. they're different, it seems to me, right? right. Yes. Um, the other thing that I think you're, you're wonderfully explicit about saying is, however beneficial imitation is, broadly defined or specifically defined, it's not the answer to everything in the educational world, as it were. And you give a very concrete example, which I found was quite telling, through speech and language, and you talk about how children imitate, and we all think, at least I think about this, I think, well, how do you learn language anyway? Well, you hear what your parents say and so forth. But, but there's also this, this abstract level of generalizing, and so you have a very specific example where you say, well, children never say, or children never hear adults say runned and goad when they're speaking English, and yet they do that. And so they are imitating, but they're not just imitating, there is this process of I don't know, I would say generalizing, or there's some level of abstraction that they're doing. They're trying to fit patterns. And so this leads to this idea that imitation, however significant it is, and however it may be linked to a mirror neuron structure or something like that system, is but one aspect of this learning process. It is, it is, it is not the end result, or it is not necessarily the be-all and end-all of learning. Is that fair? Is that a fair way to say Yeah, it, it is. And it's been something that's been worked out in speech language areas uh, quite a bit. It's been um, suggested that we learn language by imitation, that we just copy our parents, but if you look closely, if you, even if you just scratch the surface, you realize that that can't be the answer because, like you said, kids do things that aren't you, you in the environment. I'm just, I'm just reporting. Yes, that <laughs> I said that you said. Uh, it, they do things that they never hear, um, and they don't do things that they very well could imitate. So if I, you know, uh, gave you a sentence, suppose you didn't know English that well, and I gave you a sentence like, um, uh, who did you see Mary with? Um, which is a question about, you know, I saw Mary with John. Um, and, then I, and then I said something, well, I saw Mary and John. And now ask a question about that. A natural imitative kind testing. of generalization I'm, I'm is, yeah, yeah, that's testing. okay, I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you. <laughs> if you want to generalize that structure, who did you, I saw Mary with John, I saw Mary and John, you can say, uh, who did you see Mary with? A natural uh, analogous structure to that that you might generalize to is, I saw Mary, um, who did you see Mary and? But you don't do that, and kids don't do that. Um, right. And so there's there's something, it's, it's not just imitation, there's something a little more uh, structured uh, that, that tell kids uh, or tell their language system what kinds of things are part of their mental capacity for generating and understanding speech language. Right. And to me this is really I think a key aspect of what it is that you're trying to get a across. So here's my interpretation of the whole ball of wax as it were. Um, that imitation is an essential tool, an essential aspect, perhaps an essential byproduct of this, many of these learning processes that we actually have. Um, but to necessarily be, be saying, be ascribing it the, the, the status of a driving force, or to be necessarily saying at some level that it's an end in itself, so we should look at imitation, you're making the classic mistake of, or you're potentially making the classic mistake of confusing uh, correlation with causality. So um, education, sorry, 
imitation may be an essential part of the learning process. It may be a byproduct to the extent that for humans, uh, whenever there is learning going on, you are going to have imitation or you are likely to have different aspects of imitation. But that's not necessarily to say that whenever you have imitation, you're, you're, you're going to have learning. So I think this idea of looking at it the other way as a as an potentially essential aspect or likely derivative aspect of it, and therefore what we really need to focus on is the underlying structure to which this imitation is associated is, uh, is a central key aspect of your, of your argument. Is that, is that yeah. fair? Yeah, uh, Cecilia Hayes um, has pointed out that imitation, the mechanism, is very simple. Um, that it's just an associative mechanism. Um, you take some stimulus, uh, yeah. say some action, and you map it onto a motor program that can regenerate that. So it's not a complicated thing. It exists in macaques. They have this fundamental ability um, in terms of the neural circuits, but they don't seem to take advantage of it. Um, and so given that it's a simple mechanism, the question is how do you, how do you ramp it up to be really useful for you? And, and, and that comes down to the kinds of systems that can put it into play. Um, and it's telling that, that imitation is, as it exists in humans uh, is very smart. Um, you don't, it, some of the work in, human, in uh, kids um, suggests that they will imitate quite readily, but they know what to imitate. So right. if you try to demonstrate the operation of a novel toy, but you keep failing, um, the kid won't imitate the failure. That would be a direct imitation, a stupid imitation. Right. They see what you're trying to do, make inferences about what the goals are, and then imitate the successful way of doing it, even though they wouldn't have been able to know how to do it before. Right. So this is my sense of it being a tool. So there has to be right. some there's metastructure some, underneath. There's something behind over. it that's driving <laughs> it. Yeah, e even, in, even in overt unconscious imitation, which humans do, this kind of leg-crossing copying stuff, which is called the chameleon effect. Right. Notice uh, how I'm not doing that. Yes, anymore. I noticed. I'm, you're I'm, conscious I'm, I'm, of that. I'm effortful. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing it though. <laughs> um, right. Even that is smart. Um, so, so you can set up uh, experiments where you put people in situations and have a model um, crossing their legs or scratching their head or doing things, and people will tend to copy that unconsciously. But we don't do it willy nilly. We tend to copy only people we want to um, identify with. If there's someone we don't like, we don't copy them. Um, so there's something social in that case behind um, the tendency even to unconsciously imitate. So it's, it's not just that simple associative mechanism yeah. that is allowing this system to develop, um, the higher level stuff to develop. It's the higher level stuff that's taking advantage of the simple mechanisms. But listening to you talk though, I'm thinking there are a few exceptions. So the obvious thing which comes to my mind is yawning. So this is something that we don't consciously do or think about doing. Could this be looked at as some kind of... Uh, of, of a remnant of this, this underlying mechanism, some, uh, some flaw that we're, uh, <laughs> that, that we're in, in on the evolutionary road towards getting rid of at some point. I, I mean, I'm wondering if there are other things like that, but this is a curious uh, phenomenon about mm. which I know absolutely nothing, but I'm thinking that's really odd, this business of, of feeling compelled to mimic someone else on something so seemingly inconsequential as opening your mouth and getting oxygen. Yeah, mi uh, mirror neurons have been implicated in, at least speculatively, in contagious yawning. And it seems to occur in animals, I believe, as well. Um, I haven't thought deeply about it either, so I don't have a good answer for you. But um, I do know that there is a tendency to imitate that we're constantly suppressing. Um, and it shows up in neurological disorders sometimes. It's called echo phenomena. 
and um, it's called echolalia in speech. So with certain types of brain damage, you can get individuals who will tend to just repeat back what they hear, um, and that's obviously not neurologically normal. Right. Um, and the same, same with imitating movements and actions. There are some cases where you can get people who just copy everything you do. That's an, uh, uh, an implementation of that simple imitative mechanism. But obviously, if, if, it, if, you, if you really literally imitated everything everyone did, that would just be creepy. It's not normal. It's sure, something, and not, ter wrong, not so. terribly efficient and or not, productive or no, any of that. It has to be controlled by something. Yeah. Um, and that that's really should be the target of what we're interested in understanding, not the simple mirroring or imitative mechanism itself. Right. So, so presumably uh, a claim, let me try to summarize my sense of things, tell me if I'm right or wrong, that there is this, there is this mirroring aspect. Uh, uh, we, we as humans definitely use imitation broadly defined uh, for, all, for many aspects of the learning process. It could well be that, that physiologically or, or, or mechanically, mirror neuron systems or things like that are necessarily engaged in this mirroring imitation process. I mean, you would think so, right? I mean, it's a physiological explanation for this phenomenon that we're mm -hmm. talking was imitation, so there's right. gotta be something going on. Yep. Um, and, but that in and of itself is not the be all and end all to what it is that we're looking at. That's an aspect of this underlying mechanism that at some point has to be deciding when one should imitate uh, when one shouldn't imitate, uh, when one should do something completely different and how that should be done and what the weighting functions are for that. And, and that's the underlying structure that we should be focused on. Is that a fair uh, assessment? And so now we get to responses and, and all of that and the sociological aspect of the, the silver neuro, uh, uh, mirror neuron bullet, as it were. Um, so I'm not a cognitive scientist, and I'm talking to you, so maybe you're just a very persuasive person, and I've <laughs> read your book, and I think, uh, okay, this all seems to make sense to me. I get what, I get what this guy's saying. Um, yeah, clearly, as I said before, there has to be a physiological mechanism for, for imitation. Imitation is a very important tool, but it, in and of itself, it doesn't really solve these fundamental questions, um, including this correspondence aspect that, that, that you had brought up. Um, so that seems reasonable to me. So is everybody else in the community saying, this seems reasonable, this Greg guy is right, we got carried away, all of us, <laughs> um, or, or, or not? You know, I don't know. I haven't, I hadn't studied imitation all that much before writing this book, and I knew it was something I had to deal with in this book, because for the reasons we talked about, it was important, it seemed relevant to mirror neurons, it was claimed to be a function of mirror neurons in humans, not in macaques. Um, and so I dug into it and, and looked into all this literature about human imitation. And uh, it's a fascinating literature, and kids are really good at it. There's no doubt about it. We obviously imitate or learn a lot um, from imitating others. We watch what other people do and figure out how to do things. Other, a lot of other species do the same thing, from dogs to, uh, to octopus. Um, lots of animals octopus can do, we call it observational learning. And it's been demonstrated in a range of species. Uh, yeah, there was an impressive demonstration of an octopus learning how to get into a container from watching another one, another animal, who had figured it out. Um, made a headline news a couple decades ago, I think. Um, I, so wasn't, I wasn't paying attention then. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that you know that ability is obviously important. Um, uh, but the claim that imitation itself is the basis, the ability to imitate 
you know, generally is the basis for all of the things that humans can do is something that I wonder about and something that I haven't really talked about much public, publicly or written about except in this book. Um, but it seems to me that the story is a bit backwards um, based on what people are saying. That I don't think imitation can be the foundation. I think it's, it's, a, consequence. it's a consequence. It's something yeah. that you know, lots of animals can do, but humans have gotten really good at making use of it. Um, and, and I think that's because we have other systems that know what to do with it. Um, so I don't know how the field is going to respond to these ideas. Well, you must know a little. I mean, come on, you've come out with this book, you must have some feedback. I mean, you, you gave a very uh, compelling pricey of what you've already convinced me of. Uh, but what I really want to know is wh why don't other people feel this way? So am I missing something? I mean, if, if, I, were, if I were somebody on the other side, uh, uh, so I forget the, this Italian guy's name, but whatever. If I were, right. So if I if I were someone who was a a passionate mirror neuron advocate, how would I respond to to this book? Other than just saying you're just completely wrong. Yeah. Well, in but terms how? of yeah, what I what I don't know is how people in the imitation world will respond to my ideas about imitation generally. As far as the mirror neuron stuff, I know much better about how people will will respond. Fair enough. And, Fair enough. Because it's a more general argument. It's a more general, yeah. And it was actually interesting. I was um, questioning whether mirror neurons, I was always a doubter because of my uh, knowledge of the speech world. It just didn't pan out. And so I was you know, not sure that it would pan out anywhere if it didn't work in speech. Um, uh, but when I started looking into it, I realized how weak the arguments were and how weak the empirical evidence was, um, how circular the claims were in some cases. And, um, when I started going public, I would have people with these ideas, with these critiques. People would come up to me afterwards and say, gosh, you know, I didn't think they were doing what they said they were doing, but now I realize, you know, um, that there's some truth behind my hunch. Um, and so a lot of people kind of came out of the woodwork, um, at least it seemed to me, um, as being doubters of mirror neurons doing what they were claimed to do um, once I started talking about it. Um, so. Uh, but, you know, what I found is that if you believe in mirror neurons and there's still people who are responding to my book online and, you know, on Twitter and on my blog and things like that, um, who really want to believe that mirror neurons do what, they, what they're claimed to do. And it's very hard to convince someone who fundamentally believes that they're involved in action understanding and they generalize to everything else. And the response, you know, in general has been that, you know, that can't be right, that there's other explanations for the kinds of problems that I've brought up. Um, that's for the hardcore believers. There's a large group of people, I should say, um, that uh, have a, a moderate view of mirror neurons. So what I've mostly attacked in the book and suggested alternative interpretations for uh, is the, the, uh, the, the idea that mirror neurons support action understanding. They're the basis of it. That's how you understand through the simulation mechanism. Um, there's other people, including some, some of the folks who were involved in some, in some of the early uh, theoretical developments like Michael Ar Arbib um, and other folks who have suggested a, a more moderate view, which is that mirror neurons aren't the basis of understanding, but they assist. They provide some sort of a, a, a supplemental but this boost the, to understanding. But this is the same as I understand it of this core issue of imitation. Uh, so, so here's structurally what's going on, at least for me. So tell me, tell me where I'm wrong. So it's this idea that imitation is likely a consequence is, is, for the most part, an essential aspect of, of learning and all these other cognitive processes and uh, part and parcel of what makes, is a tool that is part of the underlying structure, part and parcel of what makes us human. This is one of the tools that mm -hmm. we use, maybe a primary tool that we use. And mirror neurons themselves 
are likely implicated in some way broadly defined as part of this imitation process. So insofar as imitation is a, is a consequence and a, 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 of, of, this, of these cognitive processes and, and is at the same time very, very important to many aspects of this, uh, we have to pay attention to it and it's worth studying. And mirror neurons themselves are, are somewhat implicated, deeply implicated, so extremely deeply implicated <laughs> as part of this imitation process. Right? Isn't that sort of the structural aspect of it? So you're not saying that it's, it's useless or it's, it's garbage or it doesn't have anything to do with it. When you talk about action understanding, I think you're talking about this underlying structure, right? Is, right. It, is, that, is right. that right? Yeah, so maybe this is a good time to kind of say what I think is going on with mirror neurons and then we can talk about how other people yeah. slightly differ from that yeah. view. Um, I think I think mirror neurons are doing ex exactly for action um, in the terms of in terms of processing uh, actions what these other neurons are doing for uh, guiding hand movements or grasping on the basis of object shape. So the basic idea with object shapes is you have visual information about these objects and that allows you to select from your vocabulary, uh, as Reed Salati put it, um, a possible grasp, grasps that you might use to, to grab these. So it's basically a, a mechanism, the, the integration of the visual information with the movement control system is one that allows you to guide actions, um, I think, or, or select appropriate actions. I think exactly the same is happening with mirror neurons, that this is a circuit that is designed or utilized, could just develop through experience, um, to take not object information, but um, action information of other animals uh, and use that to guide action selection. Some of them happen to be mirror related. Um, so in the case of humans, if I stick my hand out, that will tend to elicit a mirror-like response from you, and that would involve the mirror circuit, I would say. Um, but other actions that I might do, like throwing a punch at your face, you're not going to want to throw a punch at my face. You're going to want to duck or do something else. So basically, it's, it's a generalized circuit that's involved in taking sensory information of a variety of sorts and using that to select appropriate actions, some of which happen to be mirror. Um, and they just keyed in on those. And in fact, if you look in the early experiments, not all the cells they recorded from that responded to perception as well as execution were mirror. There were plenty, some that were anti-mirror, in yeah. fact. And they would have to be from an evolutionary argument. Exactly. You, exactly. So, um, so I think of them just like the normal circuit, nothing special. They're not doing, just like these, these object-oriented cells are not involved in object understanding, the mirror neuron cells are not involved in action understanding. Um, there is an interesting argument that is actually quite reasonable from, that comes out of the motor control uh, literature, um, and it takes just two seconds to kind of explain, well, maybe maybe two minutes to explain um, the idea behind it. Um, the basic idea is that when we generate movements, um, we're kind of simulating, so this is from the motor control perspective. When we generate movements, we're simulating that movement neurally inside. It's referred to as an internal model. Uh, and the, the purpose of that is basically to generate predictions as to where your arm is going to be um, in in the future. So as you're reaching for something, you generate predictions as to where your arm should be. You can compare that with somatosensory or visual feedback that you're actually getting to help control the movement. You basically want to see how far off of your prediction you are. Um, and that's been fairly um, convincingly demonstrated as a mechanism that the brain uses. It's sometimes referred to as forward prediction uh, uh, and, or um, uh, forward uh, control processes. Um, so if that's the case, 
then it might be possible. So if, if, if generating movements is actually resulting in sensory uh, modulation, modulation in sensory cortex in terms of what you might predict, you might use this mirror mechanism to predict the outcomes of other people's movements. So the basic idea is, is this. If I see you reaching for something, I can simulate that in my motor system, generating the normal forward prediction in my brain, predicting the sensory consequences, which I can then use to process the information that's coming in on the sensory side. So it's not so much an understanding mechanism. It's kind of a predictive coding thing. I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen next in your movements. And that's a reasonable idea. I've actually proposed that something similar to that is happening in speech. Um, which could explain some of the small effects that people see in terms of when you stimulate the motor system, how you can slightly modify the way you perceive speech sounds. Um, but I'm, I actually kind of doubt even my own claims now. I'm not so sure that that's even the case um, for reasons that I talk about in the book. Um, but that's the point is that there are other ways of thinking about this system and how it might augment perception, not necessarily be the basis of understanding but might augment perception that we're looking into. A lot of labs are looking to see whether such a mechanism might assist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, it seems to be calling for looking at this as a component of our understanding, but not confusing it with these underlying mechanisms and trying to really say, let's examine this, but let's not mistake this particular phenomenon or this, these series of uh, physiological firings with an underlying mechanism. I mean, one thing that, that occurs to me, and maybe this is just my own bias, um, uh, which I can give you a, a data set of the size of one, uh, <laughs> which is not terribly useful. Um, when I watch tennis players play tennis, um, there are different ways of watching. But if I, if I watch closely, I actually feel, and I'm using this effortful imagination, I actually feel that I'm learning at some level. So I tend to play, these are hard things to measure because I don't play sufficiently well, but I tend to play better when I watch people play and I pay attention to what I'm doing. And this is a fairly known phenomenon, I think, that people mm -hmm. like to, they say, watch this person, or you watch, right. especially when you watch um, an incredibly graceful, where you watch a Roger Federer or something like that play tennis, right. and you focus on it, and then you, it's, it's almost like you feel like you're playing yourself. Now, my, my sense is there is something going on in the learning process, just like when children are mimicking or, or what have you. That's something that can be uh, captured, and that's something that uh, with effort you can presumably train to some extent. But I'm guessing there is a huge amount of complex mechanistic stuff that's underlying all of this. So my sense is, yeah, that's a tool that I'm, I'm using or trying to use, but confusing that with the end result or, can, or, or somehow eliminating the underlying mechanism is, is silly. Is that? Yeah, well, um, in it, that's essentially a form of observational learning, um, which you're able to take information that you're seeing and applying it in your own motor system or applying it to your own sensory motor system. Um, and once you realize that you can take advantage of it, or once you have the ability, and lots of species do have the ability to do this, you can make use of it. Um, the sense that, you're, that you get that you're actually doing the action that you're observing probably comes from something like the mirror mechanism where you're able to simulate the actions. You activate the movements in your sensory motor system. It's not the, the critical thing is it's not just the movements that's driving it. Every, anytime you um, 
generate some action, you're, you're generating sensory consequences to that action. Um, so as you practice your swing, you're not just generating movements. You are feeling the consequences. Or you're you seeing where the ball hit. Yeah. And the, the learning isn't just, as the, the mirror neuron people claim, in the motor system. It's feeling and recognizing the sensory consequences of that. Because really what you want to do is not generate a particular movement. What you want to do is see that ball land in the spot you wanted it to land. You want the swing to feel right. Right. You want the contact with the ball to have the right feeling. The movements, you could do that with a lot of different movement patterns. But your target, as with any movement, and this is a key, um, the target for movement is really a sensory state. We're aiming for a sensory state. That's true in tennis. Um, it's true in speech. When, when you move your mouth, you're not trying to implement a particular motor pattern. You're trying to generate a sound um, that is reproduced the sounds of the language that you've learned um, perceptually. And so um, it really is kind of the reverse way of thinking about things, that, that the goals of movements are not the movements themselves, they're sensory states. Or right. Cool. Um, a little bit about the sociology. The mirror neuron craze, which for at least some time was running rampant through the cognitive science community, to the extent that it seemed like it was the magic pill for just about every possible condition or state or, or what have you. Um, is that something that you've seen before in other guises? Do you say, oh yes, uh, I remember that. So this is the mirror neuron thing and before that there was something else the last decade and next decade there will be something else. Or, or do you think it's a sufficiently unique phenomenon at least in your experience? Um, we always see fads in science, that's just like any, just like fashion or anything else, there's fads. Um, just in my own scientific career, um, I remember uh, a lot of interest in connectionist modeling. This is a computer-based associationist net modeling for, for human cognition. They were applying it to everything and it got very popular. Um, uh, so that's, that's happened before, that's kind of died down a little bit, people still use it, but it's kind of in its place now, it's useful. It's not the answer to everything. Um, before that, you could probably go back to the idea that everything could be solved in terms of symbolic logic and you know, artificial intelligence computation. People were excited about that. Um, before that, I suppose behaviorism is an example. Everything could be explained in terms of simple stimulus response or operant conditioning, things like that. So I, I don't think this is anything terribly different than we've seen in the past. And like all of these previous uh, fads, they kind of um, get vetted in the scientific community. There are people who are devout you know, believers and will push the idea as far as they can. There are people who doubt it, like me, and will push back. And then we end up somewhere in the middle, usually. And then it finds its rightful place. Uh, and then people move on. Um, so yeah, I don't think this is particularly unique um, in that sense. In, in a broader sense, I suppose, What's been special about mirror neurons, as opposed to some of these other crazes, is that their reach was so broad, um, explaining everything from language to empathy, um, that it really looked like a revolution um, in explaining how the mind works. And more than that, it provided an evolutionary mechanism for it. Because you know, people talk about language and theory of mind and all these human things. Um, 
but then explaining how it emerged has always been a problem. And, and connecting it to brain circuits, like how does the brain actually do this, has always been a problem. Um, especially in cases where we don't have nice animal models where we can study you know, um, the response of single units. Mirror neurons seemed to provide all of that. They explained everything. There was a simple neurophysiological mechanism that you could point to that was the basis of it. Uh, and it existed in a, um, in a primate that was reasonably close to us that we could talk about common ancestors and how things might have evolved. Um, and so it, it, it was the complete package um, in terms of explaining how the mind worked for a lot of human things. And I think that's really why it got so many people excited. Is there anything sociologically we can take away from this? Uh, so let me be more specific. So you have, you have students, you have undergraduate, graduate students, postdocs, all the rest of that, younger people coming through. Um, there is this inherent cyclical tendency for things to become all the rage and then, as you say, go into their proper place. And it's not just cyclical, I guess it's more like a spiral because there is some sort of advance mm -hmm. that's happening. Right. It's not like these things are just some bizarre sociological phenomena that, 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 that then everybody completely discards. Um, but is there, is there some more concrete message that we can pass on to, uh, to younger people? Think more critically, <laughs> don't believe everything you hear. Is right. it, does it just boil down to that or can we be a little bit more specific? Well, that, that's always the case. What I always tell my students to do and what I always try to do is to read original sources. So if you read Mirner on summary papers, like there's a great one in 2004 um, that a lot of people read. It's highly cited. That's probably the one paper or something similar that most people, if they want to get the Mirner on story, that's what they read. Right. Um, but of course, that's a synthesis and a kind of you know uh, rendering uh, down of all of this work that came before it, um, and you don't get the whole picture unless you read the original original papers. And that's what I ended up doing with a group of students. We went back and read the originals and realized that the story that had been rendered um, is not uh, what was being um, uh, wasn't provided by the evidence, wasn't supported by the evidence that that came before it. So I would suggest to any student who wants to understand something, go back and read the original reports um, and learn to spot uh, assumptions and question every single one of them, um, even in your own work. I mean, that's really important to, to question everything that you do uh, sure. and rethink things. Um, because this is not just a synthesis. I mean, this is a synthesis by someone who's an advocate of this particular, uh, this particular perspective. And that's normal. You would right. expect the advocates to be um, doing the synthesizing. Nobody else has time to synthesize right, <laughs> right. that they don't actually believe right. in. So that's completely reasonable and appropriate. But, uh, but of course, uh, if you're listening to someone who believes fervently in case A, uh, um, giving a synthesis of, uh, of the arguments for case A, they're inherently uh, biased. They're inherently non-objective. They're, they're, they're giving an argument, as I say, for right. it. So uh, whereas, and they're giving an argument, I guess, distilling and piecing together these primary sources that you're talking about. So I guess a rigorous way of, of questioning that argument is, as you say, go right back to the sources and say, are they abstracting the right uh, data? Are they, are they drawing the reasonable conclusions from what they see in front of them? But it's hard to do because, of course, I'm, I'm guessing, because um, everybody's busy. They have to depend on I mean, you have to depend on other people to synthesize things for you, right? I mean, I guess this is part of the, the balancing act because you can't say, especially as a graduate student or as a postdoc, well, I'm going to question, I'm going to 
you know, this whole Newton thing. I'm gonna, <laughs> right. I'm gonna question that, uh, and, and that synthesis, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back and, and question question Mendel and, and go to genetics. So it, it is a bit difficult. I'm using extreme examples, obviously, right. but I, I mean, you have to, for time's sake, if nothing else, you have to take some stuff on faith. And so the question of where you draw the line, I guess, is is one that one always has to be vigilant about. Yeah, um, th I think that's why the mirror neuron enterprise went as long as it did, um, is that it was there was so much being generated, and it was so difficult to go back and look critically at everything that um, it just you know people were doubting, but they didn't have the time to to go back and work out the details of why this was a problem, and it just takes someone who um, is motivated for whatever reason um, to go back and do that and to lay it out so that there's a new synthesis or a counter synthesis that. Can can point out um, you know what the problems are or what the altern at least what the alternative hypotheses are so that we have some balance mm -hmm. um, and I think I think that's kind of the way science works we're all biased I mean I'm certainly biased to believe my own work um, if I do an experiment and get a result I believe it course, someone yeah. else gets the same result I'm going to question it a little more so you know that's that's normal but if you didn't believe what you were doing uh, you you wouldn't be in the business you're in I mean we all have to believe what what we're doing right. Uh, yeah. You just have to believe it with an argument for it, presumably. Right. I, I kind of see it as a, as a kind of evolution of scientific ideas, that people throw out all sorts of ideas that are reasonable. Not all of them are right. Some are closer approximations to the so-called truth than others. And, and then they get debated, and the, the, the fittest survive and persist. And um, the ones that are most uh, valid, I suppose, are the ones that survive all of these kind of um, fads and show up in, in all, um, all eras, essentially. So I had you until the so-called truth. So are you, are, you, <laughs> are you not a realist? Do you, do you not believe that, that, uh, that we're actually converging upon some oh, yeah. truth that's so, out there? Yeah, I do, I do. Because okay. um, we'd have to start all over. Yeah, we'd have to start all over again. No, I do. I'm the kind of, um, that, that was a, a covert reference to some ideas that are being developed uh, in terms of um, what we whether what we perceive in the world is actually veridical, or whether it's just kind of an, an interface uh, that allows us to operate. Okay, um, but well, that's maybe, a, that's a different topic. But, but there's something out there, whether we can directly perceive it or not. I'm guessing. Yeah. You, you believe you're not an anti-realist. No, no, I'm, I'm okay. basically a realist. Yeah. Basically, all right. All these weasel words all of a sudden. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, what I promised that I wanted to get back to earlier, which is uh, when we're talking about phrenology and localization mm -hmm. versus uh, this, this notion of plasticity, because this comes up in a lot of these arguments. Um, it came up in your book, it comes up all the way through cognitive science, the sense of people use this principle of use it or lose it as a, as, as a way of looking at the the evolution or the modification of the human brain. And this seems to be a fairly well-established idea now that individual neurons and groups of neurons can change their function depending on their use and so forth. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's something which I'm not questioning it at its core value. Neuroscientists have, have empirically seen this all over the place. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking at an underlying function and I'm looking at a mechanism and I find it confusing. So at, at first, it seems very reasonable. Well, the, you have these things that the brain is p 
potentially hardwired to do, or at least has a potential to do, and then for whatever reason you're not using this pinky, or you're or you're you're blind and not using that part of the brain, or you you develop a certain area, and then the 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 functionality switches in a particular region, which might be one way to another. But when I actually think a little bit more about this, I don't understand it at all because you, you because there's a certain sense that there must be some kind of a threshold. Like at what point can it switch? Can a neuron switch from from one use to another use? Uh, that seems to be asking more questions, or at least uh, that seems that seems like it it entails an entirely different structure. Maybe I'm not being very coherent mm -hmm. with with what I'm mm -hmm. saying. Um, do people talk about this sort of? First of all, do you understand what I'm saying, or shall I? Shall I think I, shall so. I, shall I think I repeat so. Repeat it again. So I mean, this this idea. Let's take a very concrete example, okay. right? You used in your in your book uh, uh, an example of some people who have a difficult time expressing. Uh, they can't express emotion with their face because they uh, they they just can't Physi right. physiologically. It just doesn't right. work somehow, right? So, um, and there's a name for that, of course, because you guys have a name for everything. But, uh, <laughs> I can't remember what the name is, it doesn't matter. But it's the, the idea is that, um, that the neurons which would have been used to do that are, are now maybe doing something else. Right. So again, this, this notion that we, uh, for whatever reason, be it we're training our minds or we have some dysfunction or something, there are neurons that would normally correspond to do one function, they're, they would be dormant because we're not doing that function for whatever reason, and so somehow they start being used for something else. This notion mm -hmm. that, uh, this notion of plasticity in, in terms of different functionality of these neurons. So, in a hand wavy way, I think, well, that makes sense. That's kind of mm -hmm. cool. But then I think, how the heck? What's going on right. underneath that? What, uh, at what point do your neuron, do these neurons decide that that they're dormant? Like what is dormant? How do you define dormancy? Is it once a month? Is it once right. a year? Is right. it, it, it so? So you would have to have this whole threshold and mechanism and construct that's associated with that notion of plasticity. Do you guys talk about that stuff? Um, yeah, people who study plasticity are worried quite a bit about that. And um, I don't study plasticity much, but I, you know I'm aware of some of the the issues, and I think I understand what you're asking. So one of the the very clear demonstrations of plasticity on a low level is um, cases where, for example, um, if, you, um, if, if you were to, say, remove a digit um, and the part of your somatosensory cortex that was responding to this, the touch of that digit will tend to um, start responding to touch of another digit. So basically the surrounding areas will kind of take over that tissue. So the question is, what's actually going on there? Um, how does it take over? What is the cell doing? I think one answer to your question is that individual neurons are just doing what they do. They fire or not, depending on their inputs. So there's nothing special about the actual function of the individual neurons that makes it tied to touch from this finger. It, it responds to touch from this finger because it's wired up to the nerves in this finger. Right. So how does it start responding to these things? Does right. it say, hey, I'm free, anyone you know, right. want us? Um, probably what's going on, and this is semi-speculation on my part, I have to go to literature and see, but um, probably what's happening is that there are already connections, cross-connections, some projections from nerve cells here into the cortex that's responding to this, so it's not a clean division. So it's not a one-to-one -one map. It's right, a, so okay. there, you know, there's, it's kind of graded and it mostly responds to this, but there are some inputs coming from other fingers. Um, and maybe what happens is when this one goes away, 
these inputs are the only thing that's left and they start driving it and pretty soon it, th those synapses strengthen and you start getting responses. So you get plasticity um, from uh, connections that are probably existing already um, that are just kind of taking over when the normal inputs that are driving an area aren't responding anymore. And what people are seeing more and more is that where, where we thought an individual area was only getting input from one system, it's getting input from a lot of different systems. That's um, what I was going to ask. I mean, with fingers, you can say, okay, that's roughly right. the same area. But I mean, can, you, can it be all over the place? Yeah, so what we now know, um, yeah, so you don't usually, if you lose this finger, your visual cortex doesn't start responding to stimulation of you know, yeah. taking over. Um, but, um, but we do see, there is evidence now that, say, um, auditory cortex uh, is getting inputs from somatosensory cortex, from visual cortex that the boundaries between the senses is not as um, cleanly divided as we once thought. Uh, and there's probably reasons for that. We're, we're always trying to integrate information across senses, and you know, information is getting integrated across different systems. And so you want some feed-forward, feed-back information crossing over. Yeah. Um, and you want some redundancy. And you want some redundancy. And that could be one of the mechanisms of plasticity, is that you've got these not latent, not quite latent, but you know, you, you kind of understand that there's, there may be this undercurrent of connections that if the normal inputs go away, you've got other systems that can generate information um, being sent into this area. And that could be functional or not. It could, be, it, could, it could wire up to some system that actually leads to adaptive behavior, or it, you sure. know, it, it might get used and actually interfere with things. Um, and so if that's right, then the question is, how broad is this? I mean, does it, uh, when you were talking about, it's probably not the visual cortex that, that, that is somehow linked to these things. But then the question is, how do you cut that off? And, and how, how broad can it be? And, and, and so forth. But that's intriguing. I'm guessing yeah. that's... that's uh, back, um, gosh, in the 1990s, people were very interested in plasticity and neocortex and how flexible these systems seem to be. Um, so I, 20 years out of date. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I haven't followed it much, but it was very popular in the early 90s or so. Um, yeah. uh, when people were showing, for example, uh, Ramachandran at UCSD did a, a really, demonstrated a really interesting thing that people who were amputees, you could actually map, they, they felt their limb on their face, so you could actually touch their cheek and they would feel stimulation in their missing finger. Mm -hmm. And what he found was that there was in some people a map of the hand on the face, and that made sense because things kind of o overlapped and those areas are near each other. And this was taken as an example of the dramatic plasticity of cortex, that things can kind of take over function. And, um, but I always wondered why the cortex persisted in perceiving something that isn't there anymore. I mean, what, what is it that's making it want to perceive that still exactly. and that you would still get it? So I always looked at, I was always more interested in, in the constraints on plasticity. What stops it from just being a Wild West Right, and also why there? Why on the cheek? I mean, why, not, not just uh, what, why yeah, is why it still not, the hand, but why, why not in that particular place as opposed to right. somewhere else? Right, so there's some constraints on it, and that's, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know that we know the answer to that. I certainly don't. Maybe someone does. But people are still working on it, right? This wasn't solved in the 90s. No way. Uh, right, no. Right. Lots of plasticity <laughs> work going on, yes. Um, so just before we conclude uh, your work, 
what are what are the what are you working on right now? And let me ask a very specific question. So if I could uh, if if I could give an answer to any fundamental question related to your work that that you would have, what would you ask me? What are the things keeping you up at night? Um, what are the things keeping me up at night? Um, I I do language speech work, um, and I'm basically trying to map out the circuits involved in sensory motor control um, from a motor control standpoint. That's one of the major focus of my work. Um, another focus is trying to figure out how the auditory system works and is organized um, uh, at kind of a, a fairly basic level. So there's a lot of people working on speech um, who are interested in finding areas that are involved in, say, phonological processing or things like that. There's a lot of work in hearing, um, generally, that are, you know, interested in cochlear dynamics and mm -hmm. all sorts of, you know, low-level things. Um, how those things actually come together is something that's interesting to me. Um, so we've been doing some work trying to map out auditory cortex and how that might be, you know, that, what the maps look like. And we think we've identified another dimension of auditory cortex. It's not just tonotopy. It's um, basically a time dimension that auditory cortex codes in the maps. Um, and so we've been working on that and trying to think about how that uh, relates to you know, our ability to perceive speech sounds and frequency, the frequency-time relation. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I'm interested in. Um, there's a lot of work, actually, a lot of excitement in neuroscience about neural oscillations, the tendency for brain systems to oscillate, and how that might be playing a role in um, our ability, or in cognition generally, or perception. I, I don't know what that means. What, what, well, what are the neural systems that are oscillating? If you record from individual neurons, or just EEG is the, the obvious example, you just stick an electrode on your head and record the, the brain waves, it's not random. It, it tends to oscillate at particular frequencies. I see. So, so the, 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 this is if you look at the actual signal of all the right. different neurons, and so there's, there's some fixed frequencies that they're oscillating at. Yeah, there's, they're not entirely fixed. There's bands that, okay. that different circuits tend to oscillate right. at. And the that question, can be characterized by certain frequencies. Right. And the question is, why is it doing that? And what's, is it helpful in computation? Um, and there's a lot of uh, speculation, not speculation, there's a lot of evidence that it's actually um, part of the way the brain either codes information or primes the system for processing information at the relevant time points. Um, uh, as we're processing information over time. So um, there's a lot of interest in that, uh, and that's something that um, is uh, maybe connected to the time maps we've identified in auditory cortex, maybe not. We're trying to work out some of those details. Um, so, um, so those are some of the questions that I worry about, um, and, and basically trying to figure out how networks might uh, be uh, wired up to support our ability to perceive and produce speech sounds, which is a ridiculously complex task and can be easily disrupted with brain damage and leave people devastated without language. It'd be nice to work out those circuits and maybe we can come up with a device to uh, neuroprosthesis for rewiring brains. And, and when you're looking at these circuits, are you looking at them being localized in, in particular areas or are you looking at them uh, I mean, there's the obvious areas that seem mm -hmm. to be uh, predominantly associated with, with speech and, and so forth. Um, are, they, are they more localized in those areas? Or are they, do they go throughout the brain? Or, well, or? they're distributed networks that uh, have nodes in them, typically. And we've you know, identified, at least for the sensory motor network in speech, we think we've identified the relevant network, at least in broad strokes. Um, 
so we can point to those areas and, and the game is trying to figure out what those different networks are doing, how the system operates as a whole, um, and computationally trying to figure out you know, what, what is it actually doing. And so I'm spending a lot of time uh, working uh, on trying to integrate work in um, motor control. So there's a lot of work on the engineering of how to control a robotic arm and how to optimize that and how the brain might be doing that. Um, and then there's people who are studying these processes from a linguistic perspective. And I see this as an opportunity to try to put those pieces together and to try to come up with an integrated picture of how the brain might be doing this for speech and making some progress, I think. One, one more question. Um, so recently I talked to a woman who does uh, auditory illusions, Diana Deutsch yeah. at UCSD. And in that conversation, it, it came to pass that um, one of the interesting things that you might be able to do with that is look at what's actually going on with these illusions in terms of the auditory processing systems and the notion that there may be different systems, uh, not dissimilar to different visual systems mm -hmm. uh, in the brain, um, and looking to use some of these illusions, auditory illusions, as a, as a tool, as a scalpel, if you were to be able to, to evaluate and measure these um, these different systems. Is that something that would be interesting to you or interesting to anybody else? Are people doing that that you're aware of? Is well, that a tool that people could use? Illusions have been used in visual uh, science exactly. for a long time to help try to figure out how the system is organized. And exactly. I know Diana Deutsch has been a, um, very active in un uncovering auditory illusions. They haven't been as useful, or at least haven't been utilized as much in auditory work. Um, but I don't see any reason why they couldn't be used. And some of the principles that, in fact, Diana's work, uh, or Diane's work suggested um, decades ago are principles that are being developed now and even in my own work. So years ago she talked about the idea that there were two auditory systems um, uh, organized functionally differently. And one of the big things that I've been promoting over the last decade is the idea of a dorsal sensory motor stream that's coming out of the auditory system versus the ventral stream that have different functions. So. Right. Um, Yes, which, which parallels visual system and probably is a general principle of how the brain works with respect to processing sensory information. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't see any reason why that sort of information couldn't be utilized and, and put to good use in auditory work. Cool. Anything else? Anything we missed? Anything you'd like to talk about? Mm, no, I think we covered just about all of it. Great. Thanks a lot, Greg. All right, a lot thanks. Of fun. That was fun. Thanks. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Ellen Bialystok, Victor Ferreira, Uta Frith, and Martin Monti. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. 